daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Prabowo Subianto has declared victory in Indonesia's presidential election. Japan has lost its spot as the world's third largest economy to Germany. Tourism bureau bosses across China vie for internet fame and tourist traffic. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Former General Prabowo Subianto has declared victory in Indonesia's presidential election. Unofficial counts show Subianto has secured more than 50% of the votes. The sitting defense minister of Indonesia said the quick count results indicated that he would win in a single round. The official election result will be released in mid-March this year. The elected president will be inaugurated in October. For more, I earlier had a conversation with Rong Ying, senior research fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Thank you for talking to me.、Uh, what's your first reaction to the results? Really, I mean, was it surprising to you that Prabowo Subianto won more than half of the votes? Well, I think well, first of all, I would like to congratulate、uh, Minister Prabowo or Suharto for winning the election according to the、uh, preliminary results.、Mm-hmm. Uh, even though I think the final results will come much later. This is a good news for Indonesia, a very important,、uh, I mean, country in the region, Southeast Asia, and I think for the region as a whole, the election itself has been conducted、uh, relatively peace, peace in a peaceful and uh, uh, so successful way. So I thought that this is also good news for Indonesia and for Indonesia people, and certainly I think for the region、uh, as a whole. Mm. Now we understand,、uh, as you already mentioned, Prabowo Subianto is the sitting defense minister of Indonesia. Can you help us understand more about him? Well,、uh, Minister Prabowo Subianto is a sitting、uh, mean, minister for defense, but which means he has a very strong military background. He's also, I think, a veteran、uh, politician. Who has run for the presidential elections uh, twice, mm. Uh, mm. competing the current, the sitting president Joko Widodo,、uh, in 2014 and 2019, and also I think、uh, he is very much I think popular uh, among the uh, I mean the Indonesia voters because、uh, most of the opinion poll. Uh, before the election polls, if one can all indicated that he may have,、uh, he had a quite a good chance. So I would believe that、uh, there was no surprise, but、uh, it also proves that he really、uh, deserved the popularity, or he really uh, uh, sort of the voters、uh, has a very strong sort of.、Uh, So the favorable、uh, views about him, and of course that also means that he has.、Uh, I mean, the voters、uh, have a quite uh, uh, high expectations for him,、mm. and also I think for the、mm. for the policy directions of the the, the current government. Well, during the 2022 Shangri Shangri La dialogue in Singapore, which is a very important security, regional, and global uh, security uh, forum uh, in Singapore, Prabowo Subianto proposed the idea of the Asian way for dealing with Asian security. So, how do you understand his words? What does it reflect about his vision for Asia? Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I a question. I think、uh, Asia as a whole. If we look at the past decades, particularly since end of Cold War, has enjoyed a very, I mean, relatively、uh, sort of、uh, peace and stability,、uh, which prepares or makes it possible for the region as a whole to enjoy prosperity. And the the, the key to that, or the main, I mean, is the Asian people, I mean, Asian countries, 
has more or less followed their own way to managing their their, their, their security or managing the uh, the challenges to security. For example, I think uh, uh, most of the Asian countries or Asian Asians believe that differences or, or disputes should be so- solved or should be addressed through dialogue, not confrontation. And uh, I mean, folks better way uh, than other means. And more importantly, I think uh, uh, their past experiences and also I think the Asian history and the culture uh, that which advocates that more kind of inclusiveness, uh, openness, and peace mm. and stability uh, are something, a kind of principles or norms for Asian countries to address a problem. Mm. This, I think, very much makes sharp contrast with the other contrasting visions of block politics, of small click, which I think increasingly are affecting or even undermine the efforts by Asian countries. And so it is very important for countries in the region uh, particularly like uh, important regional countries like Indonesia or, or Minister of Defense like Prabowo Sobyan Otto to emphasize the importance of the Asian way. And uh, I only hope that the countries outside Asia or non-Asian country or extra regional countries uh, would respect the Asian country's aspiration and more importantly, I think they are uh, they are I, they are sort of thinking or philosophy in addressing, in promoting uh, uh, Asian security through cooperation, through dialogue, and certainly I think uh, in a way that uh, security will be achieved in a more sustainable and uh, and, and the balanced uh, sort of effective way. Mm. Now, uh, Prabowo's uh, running mate, Jibran Raka, is a son of current President Jokowi. What do we know about him? Yeah, I, certainly I think we all know that uh, uh, Gibran uh, is, uh, I mean, now mm. uh, sits uh, sort of rounds together with Prabowo. And uh, despite, I mean, in, in addition, I mean, to the fact that uh, he is a son of current president Joko Widodo. Uh, he is young, mm. he is energetic, and he is also very much, I think, uh, sort of creative and uh, proactive in terms of promoting reforms. Well, when, I mean, he is the mayor of Sakura Kado, and uh, when he was very much, I think, uh, popular. He, uh, he is very much uh, uh, in a way that uh, impressed his uh, voters in terms of promoting reform, transformation. And of course, we all, that all, because of that, uh, he also have won a lot of support, supporters of Jaco Widodo's party. Mm-hmm. The, the other thing is that it is because of that track record, I think, with the support of his party, that the constitutional uh, support of Indonesia even revised the relevant uh, articles of the constitution so that uh, the, he, he himself will be able to run the president, I mean, run the presidential election uh, as, a, as, as a running mate, a vice president, because, uh, because the old article has an age limit of uh, 40 years. He's, he's just, uh, I think, 30 something, 36, 37. Mm-hmm. And so that also testifies, I mean, proves that he really has uh, a very sound uh, supporting base for support. And of course, again, high expectations that uh, with he, uh, with uh, uh, Gibran, Mm. Serving as a running mate, vice president of Palabowo, uh, I think the the uh, there will be continuity or more continue continuous uh, effort. I mean, in terms of the policy uh, directions mm. uh, that has been pursued by Jaco President Jaco Widodo. 
Right now, Dr. Rong,、uh, how does Indonesia's elections matter for Asia and for the entire world? Well, this year, the year two thousand twenty-four, I mean, I think election year. There are、uh, over, I think, seventy elections、mm -hmm. uh, uh, covering half of the global population. We're talking about four billion、uh, people. And Indonesia is a big country. It's an important country for ASEAN, for、uh, Southeast Asia, and also in, also for developing country. We have more than talking about two hundred. More uh, million uh, sort of、uh, voters populations, so the successful, the smooth、uh, conclusion or running of the election, and and that、uh, so far has produced a, a, a highly popular leaders for Indonesia is a good news、uh, for peace and stability of Indonesia. And also, I think,、uh, in terms of the continuity of the policies that Indonesia has been playing, Indonesia is a big, is a very important country for region and for the world. We only hope that more elections will will, will be coming、uh, in a way that、uh, produce more stability and more predictability.、Uh, after all, for this world, for today's world,、mm. I think what we need most. Uh, is predictability, stability, and、uh, thanks to the I think the successful conclusion of、uh, election in Indonesia, we、mm. are now is can rest for ease as at ease at、mm. this moment,、mm -hmm. and、mm. uh, waiting to see more elections to come.、Mm. Well, uh, Dr. Rong.、Um... Prabowo Subianto campaigned on the promise of continuing Jokowi's policies. I mean,、uh, in terms of foreign policy, how do you think Prabowo will pursue Indonesia's China policy, and、uh, how do you think China will pursue its Indonesia policy by then? Well, let me first of all, I think China、uh, is a country that uh, pursues uh, uh, and. Uh, Policy of non-interfering internal affairs,、mm -hmm. and、uh, the elections in Indonesia certainly is an internal affairs, and China would、uh, respect、uh, the whatever outcomes, and certainly would also hope that、uh, peace and stability will uh, continue uh, in Indonesia. And, and in the meantime, Indonesia is a very important neighbor of uh, China, mm -hmm. and China Indonesia has a. a Comprehensive strategic partnership with Indonesia under the leadership of President Joko Widodo. The relationship is、uh, growing uh, substantially, uh, and promoting not only bring bring about、uh, more benefits for the two peoples, but also I think for the region. And big major、uh, projects, mega projects like the uh, uh, Jakarta Bandung uh, railways uh,、mm -hmm. start. Sort of operational and bring again under the BRI framework, and there are other initiatives and other sort of cooperations China and Indonesia are working on. And so the election certainly, I think the result again, particularly the I think expectation that、uh, there will be more continuities、uh, in terms of not only domestic politics、uh, but also in terms of foreign policy. Uh, including its relationship with China is a good news, and so China welcomes、uh, the election, outcome election, and is also looking forward to work with the new government, which will come in、uh, in October,、uh, to continue to、uh, jo work jointly for、uh, more deepening and broadening of the relationship between two countries and for the region as a whole. That was Rongying, senior research fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Hello there. This is Ge Anna, your host of World Today. Hey there. I'm your host Wang Zhihan with the Beijing Hour. As I eagerly await the arrival of my little dragon, I want to share a heartfelt blessing with all the moms and their babies, bundles of joy. For the year of the Chinese dragon, I'd like to wish you 翩若惊鸿，宛若游龙 That's to say that I wish you the grace of startled swan and the wandering dragon in 2024. May the year of the Chinese dragon bring you strength, wisdom, and endless moments of bliss. Wish you and your precious ones a truly enchanting year ahead. Hi, this is Tuyun. May you find the hidden dragon in yourself in the year of the Chinese dragon. 
行云一条龙 ，Be there with me at the chat lounge. Happy Chinese New Year! Welcome back to World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Japan has lost its spot as the world's third largest economy to Germany. Government data released on Thursday showed Japan's economy shrank at an annualized rate of 0.4 percent in the October-December period last year. This marked a contraction for the second quarter after a 2.1 percent decrease registered in the third quarter of 2023. Japan's nominal GDP in 2023 stood at about 590 trillion yen, or 4.2 trillion U.S. dollars. This means Japan lost its status as the world's third. Largest economy to Germany, which was about 4.5 trillion dollars in size. Now, for more on this, we're joined on the line by Professor Qu Qiang, Assistant Director of International Monetary Institute, Renmin University of China. Thank you, Professor Qu, for joining us. Thank you, and a happy Chinese New Year, to indeed, everyone. Indeed, happy Chinese New Year to you too, Professor. Now,、uh, first of all. What's your initial response to the news that Japan has slipped from its position as the world's third largest economy to the fourth? I mean, has it been predictable to you? Oh yes, I think、uh, I'm not shocking at all to、mm. hear about this news because、uh, this is going to happen sooner or later. It's just a matter of time.、Um, recently, I think、uh, Japan is in a, a rough period of time. Everybody knows well. Uh, for short-term reasons, we've been seeing、uh, the upsurging of the raw materials price, and you know,、uh, energies like uh, uh, crude oil and、uh, natural gas has been hard for、uh, Japanese production. Everybody knows、uh, Japan, Japan. Well, they have to choose side in the Ukraine crisis. Therefore,、uh, the energy prices and also the raw material prices rose up very, very quickly in Japan. And also for the long-term reason, we also see、uh, the aging problem in Japan is very, very serious. And、uh, the economic structure optimization is not going on very smoothly,、mm-hmm. and also currently、uh, because of the world,、uh, you know, wide inflation are happening. So,、uh, like the USA, they have a huge downpouring of the、uh, liquidities into the market, and later they、uh, raise up the interest rate really quick and really high. So Japan, you know, really、uh, suffered from this collateral damage of the USA's、uh, financial policies. So I think all these reasons put together, you will see the the exchange rate of the Japanese yen has been, you know, shrinking or depreciated greatly against U.S. dollar as well as to the European、uh, Union's euro. So I think uh, uh, those reasons plus together, overlapping together, make、uh, you know Japanese economy are growing very slowly, you know, slower than Germany. And right now, you see what you have already saw. Mm-hmm. Indeed, you already talked about you know the geopolitical tensions, especially the Ukraine crisis, as well as you know the the link, the close link between the Japanese economy and the U.S. economy. All these are contributing to you know a slipping、uh, Japanese economic growth. Now, Professor, can you help us understand more in details about the kind of influence that the aging population in Japan is casting on its、uh, domestic economic growth?、Uh, oh yes. I, I do think aging problem is a very important, you know, reason lead to、uh, the Japan's,、uh, you know, economic, you know, situation.、Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's the only one, the most serious one, because there's many.、Uh, there are many countries suffering from similar situation. For、mm-hmm. example, for the Nordic nations like Norway, like Finland, they also have aging problem. In many Western European countries, they also have aging problems, and also in. Some of the most, you know, wealthy American states, they also have aging problems. I think the most important reason for Japan is they have a very important, you know, pathology in their economic structure as well as、uh, um, in their whole geopolitical situation. For example, in Japan, many of their、uh, economic sectors, for example, Japan used to champion the semiconductor. Industry of the whole world, but because the USA and the other allies, you know, have the contact with them, so Japan are not allowed to, you know, dominate their area. As well as similar situation happened with Japanese automobile industry.、Mm. You know, Japanese automobile industry used to, you know, also triumph over the Western, you know, car makers, but also because they live in these islands and they have to, you know, submit. To a certain kind of agreement with other nations, so they don't have a say over their own economy. So I think aging problem only make the situation worse. A country who do not have the sovereign 
power over their own decision-making and their economic development, I don't think it will have a very long and bright future. So I think Japan right now has been suffering from the spillover effect in the long run. Mm, indeed, that is indeed a problem. Now, Professor Chu, in your observation, are Japanese policymakers responding fast enough to the challenges that the country is facing? No, I don't think Japan is, you know, been uh, acting very swiftly toward that situation. Well, I do applaud that Japan has really tried to make some, you know, uh, change. For example, in Abe economy uh, economics, they try to, you know, adopt the modern monetary policies to solve the situation. And Japan is probably the earliest, you know, uh, Asian country who adopted the immigration systems into their own country. Because, you know, Japan used to be a very conservative country who do not or have a very strict restriction on immigration policies for the foreign citizens. But right now, Japan goes really far and, you know, really solid. But I don't think they really touch that situation, uh, you know, to solve the fundamental problems. For example, right now for Japan, they do not have enough domestic demand. They do not have, you know, enough labor and they do not have the power to have uh, their own say on their economic structure. I think the way out is to cooperate with their neighbors, Korea, China, Asian nations. Mm. So more than to have an opener attitude on immigration, on the culture or on the other things, they should have an opener, you know, uh, you know, mindset on their neighbors' relations. For example, uh, they should admit the history and then they should open up and embrace their neighbors to have a more peaceful and a harmonious you know, cooperation uh, relation with other nations. I think the whole ASEAN and the whole Eastern Asian uh, grand region will provide Japan, you know, enough space, enough potential and enough structure, uh, you know, to be optimized in the future. Mm -hmm. So I think if they can realize that and become a real, true Asian, you know, country and, uh, you know, uh, to rely on this, you know, circle of culture and economy. And I think Japan will have a very different future. Mm. Well, Professor Chu, the International Monetary Fund has predicted earlier that India is set to become the fourth largest economy in 2026, and Japan will become the fifth. I mean, how do you see the prospect of that? Well, Mm. I I don't think this, uh, you know, ranking matters uh, that much. Um, Japan... Mm have a much smaller, you know, uh, you know, population size more than India. Mm. Uh, India is growing very uh, swiftly uh, for now, but I do not think, you know, India's economic growth uh, will be as high and as quality enough uh, like Japan. Japan still have the one of the highest living standard per capita. Mm. Japan still a dominant, a certain and the commanding height in technology and in the world economy. So the basic urbanization situation and also the modernization situation is far better uh, than India. India will have some bonus of their population size and their current opening up in certain area of their economy and finance. Mm-hmm. But I don't think their impetus, uh, their momentum is going to last for that long because something, you know, for for the India, they also have their pathology in their economic structure as well as in their society. And those things, if they cannot root cut and stop, I think uh, India will also face you know the aftermath of this negative impact, uh, you know, of the pathology in the future. And I think the uh, impact will be bigger, even bigger than Japan. It's just a matter of time as well. Mm-hmm. So I think Japan, I I don't think they are you know uh, in some you know. Uh, in a, a lane without a future. I think Japan still have a future. Japanese people are hardworking and smart, but I think the problem is that for they to realize what's really happening, that's what's the really important matters that uh, you know they really need to solve. And to make a peaceful and a friendly environment around them mm. can basically help them to solve most of the problems they're dealing with right, right now. And I think uh, India would not you know, fundamentally and essentially surpass mm. Japan. And that's my uh, personal you know, uh, mm. idea. Thank you, Professor. We appreciate your time and insight. That was Professor Chu Qiang, Assistant Director of International Monetary Institute, Renmin University of China. Coming up, tourism bureau bosses across China vie for internet fame and tourist traffic. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. I am 
Sun Wang, Chief Economist of Hang Seng Bank China. The world today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. As more and more Chinese return to their pre-pandemic leisure habits, local cultural and tourism bureaus in various parts of the country have been exploring new and creative ways to attract tourists. Some bureau bosses have made themselves stars with costume dances, impromptu singing, and historical reenactments. Others resorted to the influence of celebrities, asking for their help to introduce culture and tourist sites. What does the competition for internet fame and tourist traffic among China's tourism bureau bosses tell us about today's China? Apart from tourism, what other opportunities are presenting themselves for cities and provinces in China that are transforming from a reliance on heavy industry to high-quality development? For these questions and more, I earlier talked to Dr. Zhou Mi, senior research fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, Professor Doug Guthrie, director of China Initiatives at Thunderbird School of Global Management, and also Mike Basting, China observer and senior lecturer at the University of Southampton. Now, officials in the, these bureaus of cultural and tourism really went out of their way to promote local tourist sites. Some went on social media themselves and sent out videos of singing and dancing. Others teamed up with celebrities to attract attention, and some of them offered free or discounted admissions for attractions during Spring Festival holiday.、Um, Dr. Zhou Mi, have officials, local officials in China? I mean, always have been this entrepreneurial, and what prompted you know them to take、uh, such great initiative? Yeah, we know that、uh, the、mm. the COVID has、uh, made the Chinese economy quite different. When we're able to recover from the pandemic, there are so many new things we have to explore. Maybe some of the things are to do with、uh, economies,、uh, local economy, but more of things are to do with the people. So I think that many of them are trying to find better, better, you know, supporting pillars or you know, interest point for the for the tourists to come. Especially in the Spring Festival, it's a really Very important time in China. We have the culture, we have the habits, or you know the the you know the trend to go around in China. Maybe it's it it is forecasted that in the Spring Festival season we will have more than nine、uh, billion people.、Uh, I mean, moving around China.、Indeed. So there the the movement means there will be more opportunities. So I think that、uh, many of this、uh, you know the the movement of people not only not only going back home. They may like to trying to go around using the vacations,、uh, the holidays. You know, there are also some policies with the free tour in the highways. So there are really、uh, some kind of opportunities for the local governments to think about that. Because the tourism is not only about the visiting. There are also include many other things like the the food, the restaurants, and also the shopping. So there are so many things that they can think about. And some of the intents are also include for the conference. And some of the visiting, or even to take a medical、uh, treatment. So I, I think that、uh, all these,、uh, you know, the local governments are really want to find some more, you know, the environment friendly ways of development of recovery from the pandemic. Well, they have to improve the infrastructure. They have to make a different. Discounts or policies to attract the people because the places are there. Maybe they can not only. Trying to do with the hardwares, they are thinking about some kind of、uh, soft things like the the festivals、uh, or sports or any other of、uh, you know the kind of、uh, gatherings. So、mm-hmm. these are、uh, quite possible for them to develop their own ways of attracting people. If this is successful, they may keep it for the next year. If it's not so successful, they can also learn from others. The short video platforms has、mm-hmm. put it、uh, in a much wider competition. I mean,、uh, compared with in the past, because the audience are on the internet, so they can trying to compete with the different places, and they can choose from them.、Mm. 
Now, uh, Dr. Zhou, again, um, Professor Guthrie said uh, um, some local officials, uh, local officials around China uh, have KPIs and they certainly manage, you know, local businesses, um, I mean, in, a, in uncertain aspects. Do you think, do you agree with him? And, uh, you know, are local officials in China uh, like, you know, managers in certain businesses? Yeah, actually, in my understanding, it's uh, from uh, both ways. Uh, maybe KPI is one of the very important things because, you know, it's uh, just uh, the performance. How can we value the performance of certain officials? So we should try to focus on what they are managing. So for the tourist, it's a very easy and very universal standards. If we are looking about the, uh, looking at the achievements of certain kind of tourism related barriers, but I, I would say that there are also another factor we should consider that is from the, the you know the feeling of the people themselves mm. when the chiefs I, I mean the officials they are they are having more pressures from you know their friends their colleagues their leaders to look at how about another counties another cities they are doing quite interesting and I think that is not our uh, kind of uh, visible pressure maybe it's uh, from invisible from the from from the, the you know the feelings or some of their ownership I I would say. Mm. So I think that from both factors that uh, these officials are working very hard trying to to be uh, better, to be uh, special in this kind of competition. Mm. Now, Professor Guthrie, um, do officials in the uh, in the United States take similar initiatives? Are they uh, this entrepreneurial too? Well, it's a great question, and mm. and. I, I, without being too critical of my own country, I, I don't think so. Mm. Um, and the the real issue that I see as as being important is that, again, to come back to this idea that local officials are given a charge. You, I thank you for for echoing the KPIs idea or exploring <laughs> that. Mm. Um, but you know, it, it, they are not only. I, I love also the use of the term entrepreneurialism and mm. innovative. Um, and you know my own university that Thunderbird is a part of the Arizona State University uh, prides itself on being an innovative hub. Mm. And when you when you travel in China, um, you find local officials thinking this way. Now, again, I deal less with people in, in tourism, but, you know, on my recent trip, I was in, in Zhenjiang and talking to one of the directors of the Bureau of Commerce, who's mm. responsible for attracting Zhenjiang in Jiangsu, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. and and just listening to that individual talk about entrepreneurialism and innovation and how he can a- attract capital to to Zhenjiang, it, w- it was fascinating because it was really about um, how you develop a narrative about your place and how you make it interesting. Now, to come back to your question, do officials do this in the United States? My feeling is not in such an entrepreneurial or innovative or coordinated way. Mm. Of course, people who are responsible for attracting tourists and responsible for thinking about the narrative of a given place like New York City or Phoenix or Los Angeles or San Francisco, of course, they have to think about these issues and it's their job to think about it. But my sense is that it's not directly tied to a deep history or a narrative in the same way that Chinese officials, in particularly in the tourist, tourism bureaus, are thinking about it. So I think there's mm. something to learn from how mm. Chinese uh, local officials are doing it and to be inspired by. Mm. Mike, what about you? What's your observation about, you know, this um, entrepreneurship or an innovation, you know, do, do officials in the United Kingdom and in the UK, uh, in, in Europe, uh, excuse me, in Europe, explore that too? The UK part of your question first, Mm -hmm. it it, it makes me chuckle a little. It's not really the same at all. No, local officials and local government are, it's a very important job, very responsible, and they're looking after large sums of money. But typically, they're lobbying central government for for perhaps more funds, more investment into local infrastructure, local healthcare, local education, for example. Mm. Uh, They're not very prominent in terms of promoting uh, the heritage, local heritage, tourist sites, that tends to happen centrally and there'll be tourism boards. So, so it's a very, very different um, situation here, uh, most definitely. So I think that the local government uh, officials in China really do need to be applauded. I mean, local government people here are probably anything but entrepreneurial. They're, they're really seen as sort of administrators, mm. 
not not the sort of um, innovators uh, that are really trying to, to boost the local economy at all. One thing I'd like to say on the, about this question, to look at it in slightly different ways, uh, yes, the, the local officials have been very innovative, very entrepreneurial, and it's great to see that. Uh, but I think it's only really been successful because Chinese people really value this now and value it more. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think if you promote something, however cleverly, however innovatively you you promote something, it's not going to be successful. It's not going to be consumed unless the consumer really does value that. So I think that's also got to be noted. That's what's changed. So Chinese tourists, Chinese consumers generally value their local heritage and the diversity of their uh, local cultures and the heritage that goes with that much, much more. Uh, perhaps they always did, but they just have confidence in that. And that's really what we're seeing coming through now. So mm-hmm. Chinese people finding themselves, finding their identity, if I could be so grand, much more in their local heritage. Uh, and and uh, government officials need to be applauded. Local officials need to be applauded because they have been innovative and entrepreneurial, but they've spotted this change in mentality amongst Chinese people, again, particularly younger generations. So I think that really has to be noted here. But the UK, very, very different. Even though we do have some fantastic tourist sites, obviously London and and elsewhere, Mm. uh, universities, Oxford, Cambridge. I'm lucky to live in the cathedral city of Winchester, which has a lot of historic Ah. historic elements, uh, but the local government not really actively involved. Mm. Very interesting point because uh, in recent years there are reports, uh, you know, media reports showing that Chinese people, especially the younger generation, are getting, are having more uh, and more appreciation about the Chinese culture and Chinese identity. Um, again, back to the local economies. Um, prior to the pandemic, um, Dr. Zhou, what have been the main growth pillars for local economies in China, different Chinese provinces uh, in northern China? Generally speaking, I know different provinces have different conditions. And do you agree that for northern China, the real estate industry is one of those pillars? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, in my opinion, it's uh, not that important because the real estate, uh, they are one of the sectors. Well, if you are looking at the prices in the uh, real estate, I mean, in the northern part of China, especially to the, I mean, the northern is uh, maybe uh, in the northeast of China, the prices of the real estate is not that high compared with uh, the main cities in in Beijing, uh, Shanghai, and Guangzhou. But mm. uh, they are fairly you know, uh, the the I mean, the prices are decided uh, by the people who want to buy it, who are going to sell it. That is the balance between this uh, demand and the supply. But for some time, for quite a while, I would say that the uh, northeast of China, there are many people are going to other places to find opportunities. So for them, that is not enough attractiveness for attracting the investors to, to build the houses. And it is also not so uh, operational for them to have uh, much higher prices. So I, I think that the real estate uh, should be our kind of, uh, you know, in the places when it's have a, a kind of uh, natures, not only for the people to live, but also for the people to to try to do some investment in those places these uh, districts are more uh, you know related or dependent on the real estate well it's mm-hmm. uh, still are de- depends on maybe for some provinces uh, like for the for the for the provinces of Liaoning there are more mm-hmm. people gathering in that places for the big cities they are more flourished in the in the real estate but for other uh, provinces maybe that people are not so in the in the density so i would say that uh, even while looking at uh, the different provinces is definitely varied a lot but uh, recently I, I noticed that the differences between the different provinces are shrinking so mm. uh, it's more returning to the normal ways of the houses to make the people to live instead of just for the investment mm. Um, Professor Guthrie, what's your thought on, you know, the role of uh, the real estate, uh, real estate industry in, you know, the economy in different provinces in northern China prior to the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is an area that's gotten a lot of attention lately. Uh, right. And, you know, China is not the only place in the world, uh, the United States included, that 
struggles with this because real estate requires such intensive capital investment and the allocation of space and investment in the space. And then you're dealing with the building of, of these assets on the assumption that people are going to move and prices are going to go up and, you know, you're going to have this thriving metropolis area. And so, so, you know, China, this has been the focus of a lot of analyses of Chinese economy and what's what some of the difficulties China is facing right now, but it's not unique to China. This is just, a, it's a really tough area. Now, to go back to the issue of local economic development and plans for economic development, it's not surprising and it's it's even the right thing that, that officials have focused on building high quality real estate infrastructure uh, to attract people to live in these areas. Um, and mm -hmm. my sense is that there's a little bit too much concern uh, or, or just it, mm -hmm. we're moving a little too fast in assuming that this is a deep problem. I mean, remember my mm -hmm. own country, uh, less than 20 years ago had uh, just a real estate crisis that affected the economy significantly and we dug our way out of it. And so I think that, yes, real estate is a fundamental part of the economic development story. Yes, it's a big risk because you have to commit the land and commit the assets to building. And yes, you're assuming that the economies are going to grow up and attract people. But I think that, that this still has a long way to play out. And so I think it's going to be okay. Mm. Well, you're listening to World Today. We're going to a short break, but when we come back, we'll take a look at the prospect of high-quality development for China's local economies. Stay with us. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of the world today. In my opinion, the world today is one of the best China radio programs. In the world today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Now to continue, uh, Mike, for provinces, Chinese provinces constantly making into the top 10 of annual GDP growth, um, what are what have local governments done right? For example, um, we have what have been the policies that have constantly supported growth in provinces like Guangdong, Jiangsu, Shandong, and Zhejiang, the usual top four. Mike. Well, I think the, the policies um, are largely benefited from or, or been driven by you know, geographic location. So these provinces, mm -hmm. you know, it's no, uh, sort of, uh, it's not by chance. These provinces are uh, generally coastal. They've benefited from. Uh, international exposure, international trade, and, and policies that have furthered the development of the, the international uh, international trade uh, right around the world, from from Guangdong, Jiangsu, and Zhejiang and Shandong. Zhejiang is famous for um, a lot of trade, a lot of entrepreneurial activity, and I think you know, local government have really just nurtured this and, and um, helped that develop. They've also relied very heavily, as a lot of Chinese provinces have in the past, on real estate as well. So these mm -hmm. top four uh, real estate industries in these in these four provinces have, have benefited very, very much. Okay, there's a bit of a bubble, a bit of a slowdown now, as Professor Guthrie highlighted. Um, a bit of a concern, I think a major concern, but these things happen. So I think they, they, the local government have really just furthered the, the development of uh, trade, international trade, uh, more market-oriented businesses. Uh, it, they tend to do a lot more work uh, from these provinces internationally, and, and I think local government have really, um, really fed that. Mm. Uh, Central and Western China are at a geographical disadvantage. That's changing now with infrastructure development across China, Belt and Road in particular. But these provinces have really benefited most from their their geographic location. Obviously, proximity to Hong Kong as well for Guangdong. Uh, so I think local government have really been, as they are now recently, what we're talking about, being very entrepreneurial and developing trade uh, domestically and internationally within these provinces. Mm. Well, maybe let's put it that, uh, this way. It's like a combination of policies that have uh, promoted growth in these uh, top four uh, economies. Um as Mike has uh, said, um, you know, cities across eastern and southern coastal provinces in China have arguably benefited the most from uh, the rise of free trade and manufacturing since China's opening up in 1979. 
Dr. Zhou Mi, so as China moves into the era of high-quality development and Chinese modernization, which is a strategy taken by the Chinese Communist Party during its 20th National Congress in 2022, Dr. Zhou, what will be the new opportunities for China's northern and western parts? How should they seize the momentum? Yes, we know that in the past、uh, maybe forty years, that China benefited by the involvement or integration with the world order and trying to benefit from the manufacturing abilities to support the demand in the developed countries. Well, these demands are still there, maybe not as. You know, developed as quicker as the past. So we are seeing that there are more opportunities, maybe coming from other areas in the world, from the developing countries, from the the emerging economies. So the integration of those areas are becoming、uh, more stronger and more resilient in the sustainable ways of development. I would say that、uh, there are still a lot of difficulties. We are looking at the infrastructure, as the societies,、uh, as a lot of、uh, mechanism. Not so perfect,、mm. but we are still benefiting from the the urbanization and the industrialization of those regions. I would see that will benefit also for the western part and northern part of China, and they are having are、uh, more advantages compared with the eastern part because they are nearer compared with those places. But、uh, that is from one aspect, and another one I would see that、uh, the development of the trade in services, the trade in services has provided so many opportunities. I mean. Also, the digital trade—they are providing those places which are far away, so they can take advantage of the internet, of、uh, the artificial intelligence, or even big data, the cloud computing. Many of the technology has provided their abilities to connect it in the in the new world. Well,、mm-hmm. the third one for with the modernization—it is also lived in China. I mean, there are so many opportunities also in China with the integration of the domestic market. There are more. Demand maybe it happened in the past with another country, but now it's happening in China. So I would say that is also opportunities for those、uh, provinces in the western and the northern part of China. But the last one, I I need to address that、uh, mm. there are still many of the cooperation. Between the eastern part and the western and the northern part of China, so they are cooperating on development technology, on better, you know,、uh, along the supply chain. Some some new things happened to do with、uh, digital、uh, economies, to do with、uh, the green economies, and also the you know the integration、uh, of the manufacturing and the services. So there are so many opportunities that、uh, these regions can explore, not only just by. Doing trade with the developed countries, so we can still doing trade with them, but、uh, there are still many more spaces that they can explore.、Mm, indeed, digitalization, green economy, all of this will be the new opportunities. Now, Professor Guthrie, in your recent trip that you mentioned、uh, in December, do you have、uh, this? Do you sense? You know, among local economies, to try to move into the high quality development era that I that we're talking about, and what do you think will be the new opportunities for China's uh, um, western and northern parts? Yeah, so it's a wonderful question because I, I think you you do see in China, just as you do in other places, but China is so large and diverse and 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 populous that. Um, there's a tremendous amount of diversity across China, and so we have seen over the course, starting in the 19, late 1970s to 1979, with China's economic opening, we saw the Eastern Seaboard develop rapidly,、uh, mm-hmm. and we saw the inner part and the western part of China be a little slower in, in development. But I think what's the really interesting lesson here、mm-hmm. is not just that. Capital is going to go where、uh, it's convenient, like、mm-hmm. the Eastern Seaboard. But what's really important about China's economic development strategy is the development of specializations,、hmm. the development of industrial clusters, for example. So in the manufacturing sector, it doesn't just work to build factories. You have to find partners.、Um, you know, in some of my work in the past, I've worked with organizations like Apple and. One of the things that was so effective、mm. uh, in the development of Apple in China was the the ways in which the company partnered with localities in building industrial clusters that specialized in things that you've never heard of.
Mm. Um, or if, you know, to go back to the Zhenjiang example, on that same trip, I went to visit Changzhou. Mm. And Changzhou, you know, the specialization in electric vehicles and electric vehicle technology. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, these are things that you don't typically think of if you're a, just a student growing up and thinking, where do I want to live? But the ways in which local officials help those local economies specialize, I think, is really the lesson. And so to the extent that the western part of China can continue to be not just a place of a lot of labor, but the place of real economic specializations in industry, but also in tourism and culture. I think that's the lesson. And that's that's the beauty of what we're seeing in China's economic development process. Mm. Mike, then do you think there will be a trend of uh, even distribution of, uh, you know, economic size among different, uh, you know, parts in China in the future? Mike. I think it will be more even, yeah, mm-hmm. as the panelists have just alluded to. We, there's no reason why the, the sort of poorer parts of China that have lagged behind, obviously, with the, the special economic zones, and the, the coastal provinces. Um, uh, so we're talking about northwest China, you know, central China. There's no reason why they can't benefit and, and almost sort of catch up. And, and I think they will. So I think we'll see far more even economic development. And that really is where the growth almost has to come from now. These, these major cities, perhaps the first tier cities are to a certain extent saturated, saturated markets. Growth has to come from second and third tier cities and those poorer provinces. Uh, and, I, and again, no reason why that can't happen or is happening. It can't happen very quickly. And, and the infrastructure is being put in place as well now. Uh, and the service sector and the cultural attractions are there as well. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think that really is a uh, yeah, very exciting next step, really, in China's economic development, where the, the wealth and the, the, the economic activity will spread and is spreading mm-hmm. across the country, almost from east to west. Uh, and well, on my trips back to China, I tend to, to try to focus on those parts of China that are really um, developing quicker now and catching up with, with the, the eastern side of China, so typically Chongqing, Lanzhou, uh, which are really sort of central hubs now for economic development across that wider region mm. in the, the, the centre and the, the west, west of China. Yeah, so so very exciting times. Mm. And I think younger generations, again, make this point. I think they're, they're changing. I think they're, they're not um, driven by the need to be in Beijing or be in Shanghai. They don't have to <laughs> right. have a career in a first-tier city. It mm. can happen outside of those first-tier cities. They can stay local. They can Mike, stay mm. close to their roots. Well, uh, and, and yeah, more of that. Mm. We have about a minute to wrap up the conversation. But Dr. Joe, briefly, I want to mention Hefei in Anhui province because Hefei has been mentioned by the media quite a lot in the past few years as a success example. The city is a thriving cluster of cutting edge science and tech. So briefly, maybe in 30 seconds, Dr. Joe, what's uh, what experiences can Hefei provide? I think that uh, for the mm-hmm. benefits of Hefei, they have a very good education and uh, also the science, the basis for them. So there are so many people with uh, high uh, intelligence. And also, I, I would say that uh, the, the business uh, there are real good, like for the houses, prices are not that expensive. Then they are trying to connect with uh, surrounding provinces. That would be some of the reasons why Hefei has uh, so many uh, good achievements. Dr. Joe Mee, Professor Doug Guthrie, and Mike Basti. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.